Good evening, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Convery, there's Lucy. Hi. Roger. What hell? We're all here and we're going to talk about, well, rereading things that we've liked or hated to see if we've softened or hardened or books have just generally gotten worse while sat on our shelves. Mm. But first... I do find they decay. Yeah. Some of my asterisks have got a little bit of pin mould on them. Mm. I was really worried about that because my You do not want pin mould on your asterisks. Lucy, what are you even reading? So this week, um, I've only got one, but it's a really good one. What is it? It's called uh, Audubon, On the Wings of the World, by Fabien Grollo and Jérémy Royer. God, you sound like you've been reading much classier stuff than us already. It's... Okay, so... I imagine this is like a niche subset of the market, but if you want an extremely trippy comic about early 19th century American ornithology, this is the one for you. Say more. Mm. Throw away all of your other ones of those. This is the one, the the definitive. Um, So um, Jean-Jacques and then later John James, when he anglicised his name, Audubon, was a French-born American naturalist who um, set himself the challenge of seeing and capturing by painting all of America's birds Mm. in the sort of 1820s-ish kind of time. Um, that was really hard to do because getting around was difficult and there were a lot of diseases. Um, so he has kind of a rough time. He has a lot of... This is where the trippy bit comes in. So at one point he's sort of in the woods and he contracts a fever and he's taken to a Native American camp to be treated by someone who his guide knows there. And, you know, like he's seeing his greatest rival in the in the sort of field of making books about American birds as a vulture and it's it's really properly trippy, dream sequency, weird but also really good and about sort of there's a lot of conservation in there as well so I mean even at that point he is kind of decrying the impact that civilising the American continent is having on its natural resources there's a lot of, like that is very apparent to him even sort of 200 years ago I mean fuck the states and now but um, and it's also um, he meets a young Charles Darwin at one point and it sort of captures the kind of the crazy excitement I guess of early evolution just Mm. how completely you know nobody had been had been thinking or had been allowed to be thinking like that and then to to suddenly start introducing that I mean so Audubon himself was not into it at first but as he gets older you sort of follow him through the book he starts getting kind of you know Darwin's saying these birds they once had teeth they once were we found skeletons that looked like reptiles all of this shit I think maybe they came from them and Audubon's like no God made them to be awesome and birds but then later he starts kind of like seeing birds with teeth and stuff and it creeps into his consciousness I mean he he was kind of a shit to his family not because he was a bad guy just because of that thing where if you've got one extremely strong driving passion that involves being away all of the time you're just not going to be a great dad particularly with the length of time travel would have taken he was away for sort of six year stretches at a time wow yeah didn't really see his kids a lot when they were young because he sort of he was kind of crazy at first with the need to paint all of the birds and how many birds there were and how long it was going to take to paint all of them um and as he dies he turns into an eagle and bursts out the window is that poetic license or yes. did that happen? No. <laughs> it's um It's one of those it, metaphors I've been hearing so much about. Well it, it reminded me of um of, of Geis or Geish, 
that sort of guy becomes bird flies out of window thing but also um it was more just sort of a corpse launcher though wasn't it well so was this it also something i really 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 liked about it and i think this is the kind of french influence um it does that thing that I've seen in some of the um, Cinebook stuff. It does show, don't tell extremely well, and it does that very slow, only exposition is through telling the story. There's no background world-building stuff, and it does a very good job of that. And it's beautiful. It's no-brow. Mm. It's beautiful. But it's substantial. It's a, You're getting a lot of book for £15. Has it got that nice, thick paper that It use? does. Oh. And the colouring is beautiful. Really? Honestly, I was a lot happier before I knew you were sexually excited by Nobrow's print stock. So yeah, my only regret about this is that it was actually officially translated and published in English last year, so I can't count it on my best of 2017 list, because so far it is a very strong contender. Dag Mabbit. Yeah, I mean, I might do it anyway, because I often bend the rules. I will pull you out on that shit. I will I don't know. We'll probably let you get away with it. What are you going to do, usually, daddies? We usually do. Roger. Hello. The voice of the patriarchy. <laughs> Well, why don't you just make me a sandwich? I do not have the ingredients. Mm. You could try. Can we get a sandwich later? If you're a real girl, you no, try. No, we're going for dosa. <gasps> That's better than a sandwich. It sort of is a sandwich. It's, it's a sandwich. Don't think about it too hard. It's, it's in the. We'll get into one of those. It's hot, in the sandwich Is a, <laughs> a hot dog a sandwich? Arguments and those can go on for years. I think don't, a hot dog is a sandwich. Don't. We don't. We don't need a sandwich <laughs> ontology cross, right here, right now. Don't. Don't. Don't cross that. Sausagey line, that sausage yeah. threshold, that porky Rubicon. The mustard Dixon line, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been, I've been reading a few things. Um, I nipped into Gosh after our talk on the last podcast about lovely comic stores. Mm. And I picked up Dirt by CJ Ray or Rie. May uh, I interject at this point to say that I got Audubon at Niche in Huntingdon, which mm. I also enjoyed in the local comic store podcast it was it was on their table of discovery and i discovered I it like and i loved it discovery. i do like a good discovery table mm. so dirt was in the um, in gosh's zini small pressy here's some lovely shit mm-hmm. area no um cj ray is um i think describes themself i'm not sure where we're at as a the it's evolved across the back matter, so the most recent thing I picked up by them, um, I think they were describing themselves as, I can't remember if it's actually queer or gender queer, but they're, they're kind mm. of... Non-binary. Non-binary and, and in that in that kind of um, queer creator space. And the thing I picked up last time was called Laid, and I reviewed it very briefly on mm. the blog, uh, because it was amazing. It genuinely, absolutely brilliant, lovely little thing, it, this sort of blue line work, like an old sort of Stetna machine. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a little bit lino-cutty maybe in places. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, a slightly earlier book in the same idiom. So this is about a lady whose brother, I think, has just died, yes, brother, has just died and she's not coping very well. And she's incredibly butch, may or may not actually be a lesbian, mm. um, but that, that is, it, it's not important and it's not made clear. She's a fairly sort of androgynous and or butch, reasonably modern, sort of semi-radical feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, her friends are all into the sort of punky music scene, but she's really pissed off with how sort of dick-swinging egotistical it is. Um, and as part of sort of coping with grief, she's withdrawn from all her friends and relationships. She's living with a nan. And sort of on a whim, she kind of just gets into graffiti. Hmm. 
and it feels good and it makes her feel better but then she sort of sees reports in the press and that makes her terrified but also makes her sort of feel a bit more alive because of that kind of having an influence on the world mm. and then there's a sort of street harassment issue and she decides to sort of get back at the dude and it all escalates a bit and it ends in a really ambiguous way but it's got that thing that that Laid had of these beautiful tiny micro panels that just itchily do close detail and sort of hop from sentiment to sentiment. It's, it's this, it's a, it's everything I want from a zini comic in that it's got slightly kooky production values, but and it's talking about it's it's telling a small but very acute story. It's um, I fucking loved it. It it takes not very long to read and there's a lot going on. It the people are people. It's emotionally very real. Uh, it doesn't hurt that it very strongly aligns with my own politics. There's a lot of kind mm. of fuck the Tories and you keep making everyone racist and just all of that stuff. Lovely, lovely little thing. Not quite as good as Laid, but very, very good. Mm, good. So yeah, that's that's Dirt by CJ Ray in this one in um, when it came around to um, to Laid. I think it was CC Ray. Mm. So. I don't know what... I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, I should check. Hmm. CJ on the website. Hmm. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, also quite cool is the marionette unit, which um, I'd not come across... Where did I pick that up? It was it was also in Gosh. I picked up Gosh and uh, picked up um, Dirt and the marionette unit there. Um, and that's a sort of an ensemble book. It's by um, Azur Salim, James Boyle and um, art from Warwick Johnson Cadwell, I believe. And this is sort of a, I don't, I don't want to, I'm going to say steampunk. I don't think it's, I don't think it, it may or may not be steampunk and that doesn't matter, but that's the closest thing that you can hang a hat on. Victoriana and a bit of grim science. Hmm. And this is the idea that uh, at a revolutionary workhouse, people have ports plugged into their back and they get attached to horrifying machines that move mm. them and make them work. So they can kind of work tirelessly if they don't fight the machine. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, so it's got a lot of stuff around you know, marionettes and you know, horrifying hoses that hang down from the ceiling and plug into people's backs and mm -hmm. there are rats crawling all over them and they notice but they can't do anything. It's, um, and... Why are the rats not plugged into the rat machine and the rat workhouse? That's what I want to know. Well, Doing good quite, rat work. Yeah, that's economically inefficient. Mm. There, there's an industrial magnate called Debray. Uh, he runs it all. He's kind of sinister. There are tinctures because there are always tinctures. And it's the story of Beatrice who infiltrates the workhouse looking for her sister Melody who's disappeared and horrifying, horrifying things ensue. It's, um, it's stylistically... Was it a Kickstarter thing? I, I can't remember. It's not because it's not on a traditional publishing label. It's it's either Kickstarter or sort of self-funded. or something. I don't think it was Kickstarted. Um, I think there was sort of a trial PDF and then straight to full publication in the same sort of way. Oh, uh, improper. Like improper. So formed their own publishing outfit and. Um... Yeah, I believe that the so I believe the writers um, are screenwriters. And yes, no, that, that, that tallies with the jacket blow. It's good. Um, it's really neatly paced. It's, it's, um, it's quite a tight piece of writing. It's horrible. The um, sort of... 
One of the reasons I sort of dithered over calling it steampunk is that it doesn't show much of the world. And the idiom of technologized Victoriana is kind of steampunk, but it's not it's not indulging in any of the sort of fatuous bollocks that you sometimes associate with steampunk. Mm. It pulls into a shot of those at the end where there are dirigibles and shit. But actually Throw cogs at it. But it's not so they actually had dirigibles. Mm. Mm. But it's mostly not throw cogs at it. It's it's mostly this um well I mean for a start. For almost all of the book, you see no world outside the workhouse. Mm-hmm. The only idea that there's an external world comes in childhood memory, and those memories are drawn in a completely visually different style, sort of broken down and deconstructed almost like child drawings, mm-hmm. which is actually quite cool, and the colour palette's totally different. And then we finally get into the outside world, and most of these, most of the shops in an outside world are set inside a single carriage, mm. again, boxed in and tied down to Debray's world because he's kidnapped someone and they're still very much in his world. And then there's a final sort of expansive end panel where it sort of shows some more of the world. Mm. It's got a, it's got a, a really nice movement of what it visualises. Um, it plays quite neatly with a lot of its visual tropes. So the, the workforce in the workhouse are making hinges. And we never see what they're for. So they're making the, they, have, they have themselves become mechanism. They're plugged into this machine that moves their bodies. And they are making pieces of mechanism, the destiny and purpose of which we never see. And it's this wonderful kind of almost recursive visualization of being part of a machine that abdicates your agency it's it's um it's quite cute actually i, I sort of like that um and dubray who begins as flat out sinister escalates to downright monster pretty rapidly but not in a not in a badly written way no it's it's cool it's really cool hmm. good very nicely produced as well for a kind of uh it's like an image number one. It's 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 slick. It's yeah. This isn't. They're not pissing about here. Well, I mean, I've I've not read tons of stuff. Well, so I don't know the writers at all, and I think that's primarily because they are screenwriters first and foremost. Um, Warwick Johnson Cadwell, I've read bits and pieces of, just little bits here and there, and the sort of the dangeritis thing that he did with Robert Ball a couple of years ago, where oh, they yeah. did one page on, one page off to create a sort of ridiculous. Uh, 80s action hero drama that's more or less set in the northeast, but with cyborg eyes and nonsense. It's good. It's the good shit. Mm. Marinette Unit is it's um it's volume one of some, so it's not a self-contained story. Well, it feels like a although it's got a sort of the standard sort of peak and trough and sort mm. of narrative thing. It feels like it's sort of a maybe a first act or an establishing thing. I could I could easily see there being a series of three, maybe five trades mm-hmm. hanging off it, depending on exactly where it goes. Um, it sort of it actually ended up reminding me a little bit a little bit of um, the Glass Books of the Dream Eaters, except a lot less shit. But it's definitely a lot shorter, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, I mean, I genuinely actually quite enjoyed the Glass Books of the Dream Eaters. I think it just needed a more savage edit. I think that's fair, but there are very few novels out there where the villain wanks off the hero in a carriage so just for that it's it's yeah. worth, worth it's, it's justified its existence there should be there should be more of those it's worth saying with marionette unit that it's um it's not really sold to direct markets so um it's only available from sort of indie bookshops like gosh and page 45 and okay comics or from their website as a pdf I think Gosh might have overordered, given they had a large stack of them and about three quid off it. They did have a large stack of them. They've had they had a lot in, they got them signed. Mm. They've been on prominent yes. display for I think nine months or so now. It would be nice if more people bought it, it's good. Go and buy it. Do that thing. 
No, wrong podcast. Anything else? Uh, yes, Paper Girls, the uh, second trade. That came around fast. Mm. Not fast enough. I was waiting for it and waiting for it. And I could have just bought the singles, but I just... Won't. I just can't be fucked. Yeah. We're they, not good comics. So just, but they're yeah. shelved well. No. And I bought it by digital and then... Mm. Yeah, I end up double dipping anyway. Yeah. Because I prefer having the physical copy. So, Paper Girls, for those that um, don't know, is the Brian K. Vaughan, Cliff Chang thing. Um, who's, is, it, which, is it one of the Wonder Twins on colours? It's Matt Wilson. Yeah, okay, Matt Wilson. Um, the colours are amazing. Mm-hmm. By Wonder Twins, did you mean, is it Matt Wilson or Geordie Belair? Yes. Right. Yes, I did. It was Matt Wilson this time. The two people that colour good comics. The people that colour comics. Yeah. The comics colourers. Yeah, the good ones. Those, those people with their colours. So this this is the second the second volume of Paper Girls. We talked about Paper Girls previously. It's um, I mean it predates Stranger Things, but it's it's definitely in the same cultural moment, isn't it? It's it's, it's fucking Stranger Things. Um, it's derpier than Stranger Things. You've got um, three girls who are on a paper round and they're joined by the new girl in town. And it turns out that off the the back of Mac, the first Paper Girl, the the sort of lady paper deliverers have chased the boys off basically it used to be all kind of adolescent uh, adolescent man boys um and as the the paper round has been taken over by by women um that kind of disappears into the background at the end of the first one as it sort of gets into what's going on but um i just i just think it's cool the uh sort of superficial personality tropes thing from a teen movie you've got sort of mac the tough one who's obviously got some shit going on it's the standby they're the standby me kids but girls pretty much in the first in the first volume um and then erin the new the new kid who has some stuff going on that doesn't sort of necessarily become clear but it sort of it sort of looks like it's going to be a fairly standard retro 80s teen thing and then all hell breaks loose because pterodactyls fall out of the sky um, that's bad. And it turns out to be a kind of crazy time travel thing, and then it gets even crazier as it turns out that they are caught in the middle of a trans-temporal intergenerational war. Oh boy. Um, different factions from different timelines broadly representing the factionalised metastasis of do-as-your-parents-say versus the factionalised metastasis, metastasis of uh, sort of slightly libertarian adolescents mm. are at war trans-temporally by meddling with history and Stony Brook I think the sort of small town they're in gets caught up in it and so do these kids and volume one sort of leads you into that through entirely their lens through them seeing a bunch of weird shit go down and then explains it all at the end um, introducing the character of the grandfather who appears to be sort of a bit like the dude but weirder and worse um and then volume two catapults them from 1988 to 1996 and introduce and we because Erin is sort of the main protagonist we uh, we meet sort of Erin in her 40s and mm. they all have to sort of interact and it gets to do a bit more of the weird time travel stuff and there are some really cute little things around for example memory um, uh, sorry 2016 2016 Erin is a neurotic mess as mm. you know we all are in this our harrowing epoch uh, 12-year-old Erin is kind of weirdly disgusted by her and they have to negotiate this sort of, mm. you've turned into this failure that I never wanted to be, whereas present-day Erin can't really understand how this sort of happy-go-lucky kid was ever her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
There are some really nice bits like that. Some of it's a bit on the nose, but it works quite well. There's a slightly, slightly sickening bit, which where it all gets a little bit of bit sort of friendship is magic, but that is at least set against a backdrop of giant sort of kaiju-style tardigrades and tapeworms mm. slugging it out in the bay. You feel better about that's it with the tapeworms in the a bay. A classic balance, really, is yeah. giant tardigrades versus emotions. I, I, I like to think so. Um, but that then plays into the sort of degree of stuff around knowing yourself and trusting yourself. It's got a lot of... There's, there's some sort of identity theme going, themes going on, but who are you when you're older? Obviously, they're sort of playing out the intergenerational stuff through a different set of vectors, but... I quite like the the fact that the fact that older Aaron's inability to remember being this person is sort of ambiguously either an effect of her bad memory and or neurotic disposition, or a function of the way the time travel works in mm. this universe. And they just completely I wasn't ever you. They just completely sideline that. They don't engage with it. They really enjoy the ambiguity. Mm. And younger Aaron's inability to process it is either a function of glib teen idiot or the fact that it's genuinely overwhelming and it's got really nice character work against a fucking stupid but gloriously stupid plot mm-hmm. and reading between the lines it seems like the future is probably dictated or destroyed or something by an evil version of Apple because there's there's loads of like wanky future eye devices with the Apple branding and it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of slightly bullshit overly knowing stuff in here and it wouldn't work at all if it weren't for how well written the characters were and the colours are brilliant so there's a sort of colour coding for different epochs and it just works wonderfully with Cliff Chang's style it's a lovely thing you know it got an Eisner two Eisners I think two Eisners last year double fisting who'd like to know what I've been reading probably someone somewhere I hope so I mean they still listen she doesn't I don't think she likes the bad words that I use. Oh dear, the rude ones. The rude ones. Uh, what my grandmother describes as language, even though it's actually just a subset of language. That's spicy. She at one point asked if the thing I was writing had any language in it. I was like, it's quite a lot. It's mostly made of that. <laughs> yes, that's why I used to make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you use any wool with your knitting? Imagine being bothered by swearing. Imagine being one of those people. Well, the thing that gets me more is the people that are bothered enough by swearing to say, like, F star star K, as though that makes it better or doesn't make it more obvious. Like, F star star K means You're attracting more attention to the swearing than you would have been if you'd just done the swearing, yeah. It's more conspicuous than just fuck. And it's also, it's got that sort of, like, mealy-mouthed covering your... Self after you've said a bad word, might maybe the children will be offended. Who do they? Who are they fooling? What are they? The children are little fucks. You, I, I don't. Oh, sorry. This just really this boils my piss. <laughs> so I read Motor Crush. I've heard some good things about that. Yes. Is it about Not through the cloud of airborne <laughs> urine surrounding you? Through that cloud. <laughs> Um, very <laughs> pissy cloud. Is it about monster trucks? No. Oh, then I don't want to know. <laughs> it's, this it's, is new information about you. Do you like monster I trucks? I love monster trucks. Lucy's password is monster trucks with a Z. We know that now. Three Zs. <laughs> uh, no, motocross is about bikes. Oh, uh, it's about motocross crush yeah. as opposed to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of near future world with... Uh, illegal street racing and legal racing mm. um, and, and 
like Burnout Paradise if it was real kind of thing or less yeah except there are actually people on the things doing the stuff Mm. rather than just sort of weird ghost vehicles like in Burnout Mm. um yeah it's it's sort of it's by Babs Tarr Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart aka Team Batgirl gonna say that's not a bad lineup. um um, written by all of them, illustrated by Bob Starr and Cameron Stewart. It is, um, if you imagine everything that's had a motorbike or racing in in the last 30 years, it, is, it has chunks of that in it. There's bits of Akira and there's bits of Speed Racer. There's one very deliberate not to Speed Racer. How about the John um, Allison universe? They went moped for a while. If there was, I didn't spot it. I see. Um... But that's not to say it's not there. Did anyone end up in a canal? I can't rule that out, actually. Okay. There's a sort of LA-ish feel about it. And they I'm have things for. they call canals. Yeah, they're not canals. They're though, not canals. They? No it's horses, no coal. No, it's just... No longboats covered in hippies and dogs. Illegal street racers. Um, it's... From the first issue, I don't have a really good feel for whether I want to continue with it. It's quite good fun, but it's fairly slight. Like, I didn't get a good enough sense of any of the characters that I wanted to... Uh, wanted to sort of find out what happened to them. Sort of the, the storyline, the narrative, is fairly propulsive. No pun intended, but essentially there's a bunch of racers, and they race for this illegal engine drug called Crush... Which yeah, it's an engine narcotic which makes your makes engine it fast, but also just trip off its tits. Yeah, but also it's illegal and there's stuff happening and and people die for it and sometimes people pour it into people and kill them with it. There's so much high concept stuff going on that it never really feels like any of the characters land. Yes. Um, there's a lot of time spent selling the world rather than anything else. Attentive listeners might notice some twat on a motorbike gunning their engine endlessly outside where we record. That's a special thematically linked treat for you. We asked them to do it on purpose. Yeah, they're definitely doing it on purpose. They're doing wheelies in the car park. Yeah, they're they're definitely doing it because they're a good person doing a thing that we want. Are they wearing a little cape? Hopefully. Mm. Brum, brum. So it's it's got great art. It's got really lovely colouring as well. There's just like this so much good colouring. So much stuff today. with pink going on. You don't see tons of pink in a comic book, but it is aggressively pink, and it looks really quite good. Talk um, about colouring in a minute. But I think for anyone who liked Batgirl, they'll probably enjoy following onto this, even if it's a little bit. There was much less obvious humour in it. It it was a little bit grim and gritty future. Mm. Um, Worth a look, I think. Worth a look. Also went back and was reading Immortal Iron Fist um, by Ed Brubaker, Matt Fraction, David Aha. So, it kind of pretty good line. Team Hawk guy um, basically picked up picked up from the end of Ed Brubaker's run and carried on. Mm. Um, Immortal Iron Fist is Marvel's attempt to cash in on the uh, 1970s kung fu. Um, Explosion by making it whiter. It's from the seventies. This this run was a sort of mid two thousands, mid two thousand six, two thousand seven. That sort of time. Um, And the character is kind of a. He was he was orphaned as a child. 
He went to the mystical city of Kunlun, which is up in the Tibetan mountains and definitely, definitely isn't um, Shangri-La. He was raised to be uh, a martial arts fighter, and when he came of age, he became the immortal Iron Fist. Did he have a mysterious master? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it. But this is this is this is how it goes. So, what was originally a really cliched attempt to make a white and palatable kung fu star for comics, mm. um, in this run, just plays with all of the pulp tropes, mm-hmm. but not just kung fu. Absolutely, fucking everything. Um, so it's very similar to sort of the first half, two thirds of Planetary, where they just go through. Any sort of any any uh, any sort of pulp trope that you could have from Co- Hong Kong cinema, nineteen um, thirties noir, all of that, all just goes in the pot and gets used, um, and it's really really cool. You can see a lot of the um, what became the Hawkeye style. There's that sort of minimalist line that David Aha has, but it's not quite as developed. Also, it's coloured by Matt Wilson, um, but you know, ten years ago, so. It's a whole bunch of people that are doing cool stuff now, but slightly less polished. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a lot of fun. It's really worth going back and and discovering again. There's a there's two very very large paperback collections of the complete run, or it's on Marvel Unlimited if that's the thing that you pay for. Um, and it's one of those really rare runs of superhero comics where the, almost the entire thing stands up mm-hmm. and that's for the most part it has a completely consistent um, writing and art team the only time the artist changes is when it sort of goes back into the past and visits one of the other Iron Fists which it does a lot there's a sort of um, there's a sort of 1930s adventurer style version mm-hmm. with his team of plucky cohorts <laughs> Um, who is a sort of I'm thinking Defenders of the Earth at this point yeah um, very very similar so it's he's clearly modelled on very clearly based on Doc Savage Um, he's sort of the the Iron Fist of the 1930s who goes well earlier than that as well goes to world joins into World War One becomes massively disillusioned with humanity and everything else disappears into an opium funk for a while and then Mm. When he comes out, leads a team of adventurers doing things around the world, protecting people. Mm. Um, and he's introduced as a character in the present, and then you sort of dip back into his uh, into his past, and you see other iterations of the Iron Fist. Also, there's a kung fu tournament, of course, uh, against the other seven mystical cities of the world when they align once every three hundred years. Like I said, standard <laughs> farting noises. Every division. every trope imaginable gets pulled in together. Oh, and the fucked. And it's great. And you people are cowards and liars for decrying it. Hey, through the medium of farty noises. I want to read this. I bear in mind, I fucking love the Kill Bill movies. I think you'll probably enjoy a lot of it as well. There's so much good design in there. It's not quite to the same point that they got with Hawkeye, but there are just sort of ridiculous silhouette martial arts actions happening across the world. Boom. Dog. No. No. Why are you talking like this? Pizza Dog or GTFO? So yes, Mortal Iron Fist, still good. Presumably the uh, TV show is going to be heavily based on it as well, because it's the only 
long and coherent narrative featuring that character since the 70s. Mm. Mm. So this week's theme is revisiting the past, which, uh, Hart, you suggested. Talk us through that. I suggested it. You yeah. suggested yeah, it. Yeah, fuck off. I sometimes do Why are you taking all the fucking credit then? I'm not. You when just gave it to you him. dick. When did I take the credit? Lucy, talk us through this. So the idea was go back and pick up something that you, I guess, had a strong reaction to when you read it quite a while ago, where you either sort of loved it fairly uncritically or you disregarded it fairly immediately. I don't really know which one we've all gone for. And, you know, give it a reread with the benefit of hindsight and all the wonderful experience and wisdom you've accumulated ever since and see how it compares. I have been stockpiling this shit out of some pretty good wisdom. Good? The good stuff. Yeah, now you need it. Yeah. You specifically. So. Yeah. What did we all go for? I went for Watchmen. A safe choice, but one that I'm really glad I did. I also went for Alan Moore. I went for V for Vendetta. The Druid of Northampton is serving us well. A a piquant nonsense for our times. Mm. And I went for uh, Day Tripper by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Barr. From Brazil, not Northampton. Yes, it's further away. Yes. You can't get there on the A14. Yes. Watchmen. Why did you pick Watchmen? Why did I pick Watchmen? It is, I think, the first comic I ever properly read. My friend Andy lent it to me when I was in my second year at university, which places us nearly bang on ten years ago. Yep. Um, And I was at the time studying English, but had never read comics in any kind of close reading sense. I had no fucking clue what was going on art-wise. I liked it a lot at the time. I remember being very compelled by it and gripped by it. But also, it's in, in hindsight, it has suffered from the problem I sometimes do of just projecting assumed bad things onto the past. So I was kind of afraid that the gender politics were going to be worse than I remembered mm. because my sort of understanding of the nuances of gender politics was worse at the time that I read it. I was less likely to be able to spot that stuff at that point. Um, I'm glad to say it's actually been a pleasant surprise. Yes. It's, it's, but also it's been a pleasant surprise in every way. I'm getting so much more out of this book reading it ten years later than I did the first time around. I think, well, I think, you know, it's playing on tropes of comics, tropes of pulp and superheroes and noir, and also sort of dicking around with semi-recent history. And I've just read a lot more of all of that mm-hmm. stuff in the intervening time. I have a much, you know, I get more of the jokes. I have a richer understanding of the context. That makes it a more rewarding read. It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely a deconstructionist take on superheroes. Mm. And also it was written at the peak of the Cold War. A little bit of distance does help. Yes. But it's also so something that, as a kind of, and I think you're probably going to get onto this as well, mm. Roger, um, as a sort of, this is the symbol of the degeneracy of our times thing. And it also, I, I, I saw the influences of this on Transmetropolitan a lot more, having read that in the intervening time as well. They feel like kind of the same thing with a sort of 10, 15 year gap almost. Different takes on it, but the, the sort of meandering through yeah. the city, the stories being told through little snippets of people and, yeah. Um, there was no lasting peace after World War II and the sort of, the nice future where nothing bad ever happened hasn't ever really materialized. And it's really interesting in the middle of our current crisis to read the late eighties crisis. Must've been nice reading something with the doomsday clock that far away from midnight. (laughs) Yeah. 
But, and, you know, the idea of the Soviet Union being a massive threat is mm. cute. Our, our threats are weirder and worse now. Our threats are on 4chan. Um, I also, I guess I sort of appreciated the visual jokes a lot more. It does mm. a lot of that, again, cheesy, pulpy, you know, someone's talking about feeling foggy and a load of steam comes out of the kettle. The transitions are very nice. There's the bit where um, where uh, Night Owl and Silk Spectre go out and beat up some muggers the first time they really sort of hang out mm. together. And at the end, the, the frame of the panel of them afterwards is extraordinarily sexual in a way that I did not really twig the first time around there. From above, like they're in bed, her legs slightly open, her boobs slightly out, panting, looking delighted, feeling alive again. It's there's a lot of stuff that the first time I read it, I just didn't because it was one of the earlier comics I read as well. Mm. Maybe not quite the first, but not far off. And so much stuff I didn't get, which coming back to it later, like the panel structure, the Devo jokes, mm. the stuff tying his sexual dysfunction into the sort of the superhero stuff is sort of it makes sense in terms of the character. Oh, yeah. And it's one of the places where the film really breaks down. Yes. Because it decided they decided to make that scene just hyper violent, mm. um, and it sort of lost that sense of sort of daring do and superhero righteousness that's yes. required for the mm. morality the, the, to the, be yeah, the sexual stuff cute. to land. Yes. Um, and then they. Set the sex scene after to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah and the ruined, sexiest song known to ruined man. everything for everyone yeah, forever. No, that was bad. That was really bad. But I think that's that's a very good example of how the comic works and how mm. even the slightest reinterpretation of that really mm. falls down. But it's also, I mean, for me, that was something that I had no ability to read and recognize ten years ago. Mm. So I was actually sort of, you know, I tend to think ten years ago I was a lot less dysfunctional that I am now and a lot more able to do various things but actually this was sort of a lesson in I've learnt some stuff I have maybe grown as a person in some ways so that was quite nice also um, first time I'd ever used the Comicology app on my phone doing the panel to panel thing it really helps with my not knowing what the fuck is going on problem it turns out well Watchmen might be one of the few things that's structured tight enough for that to work Mm. yeah because it's the nine panel grid on pretty much every page pretty relentlessly but some of the sort of the the very slight bits of animation for sort of the reveal-y type panels Mm -hmm. is nice I think also maybe part of the problem that I hadn't really realised before is when I'm trying to read through a whole page I struggle with focusing on the thing at hand and not getting distracted by all the other stuff so actually taking it panel by panel cuts out a lot of that and lets me focus a lot more on the kind of art and composition than I usually am able to Hmm. and it's it's got it's got whole pages and entity things going on but so one of the things and I I will talk about this a little bit that I found with the Viva Vendetta is that it's from a slightly different idiom last ten years or so five years I don't know last while Mm. there's been a lot of use the whole page, play with the panel structure stuff, and mm-hmm. this feels like it's from an older tradition, and it still plays with it. There are still oh, yeah. whole pages, there are still things mucking around the panel structure, but that deliberately regimented small mm. panel, small panel, small panel thing that Alan Moore seems to like to do. Yes. And, and when it's playing with it, it's playing with it in a sort of context of the time where there is less playing with it overall than mm. we've got now, so it's, you know, it's, it's a little newer and more interesting in its own time, perhaps, than... You know, to somebody who's used to panels all over the place and splashes and what the fuck is going on, it's 
it looks tight and old or in some ways mm. but and it well, they play with that as well there are you know there's there's famous I think the ninth issue of Watchmen is completely symmetrical yeah. and it's mm. just there's a lot of weird formalist stuff going on in terms of the mm-hmm. art and story structure yes um the Black Freighter staff breaks the form a oh bit Oh, God, more. yeah. The first time I read that, I practically skipped through that. I was like, yeah, boring. It's, boring it's, pirate stuff. And it's sort of the soul of the book in a weird mm. sort of a way. It's, uh... You also get the um, a nice little recurring motifs, the um, the first Night Owl's obsolete machines sign outside his garage that the mm. second Night Owl walks past a couple of times. In, in There is always a significance to that obsolescence, and it's slightly different each time, and that's great. Um... It would be nice to be able to reread it for the first time, and if you've not read it and intend to, don't listen to this. But just the reveal that Rorschach's been there the whole time mm. as well is is quite nicely handled. Yes, I also it's it's another it's a lesson in. I'm much oh where to go with this? Um, I'm much better at seeing when a dude is a dick bag than I was when I was 19 is what I'm trying to say because mm. at the time the whole Dr. Manhattan brooding mysterious Superman thing kind of got to me in a sort of playing it straight kind of way whereas now I'm just like fucking hell you're an asshole you're a giant blue naked Mr. Darcy yeah exactly you know when he um, when he summons Laurie to Mars and the first time I read it, the sort of there's multiple panels. I think it's about six panels where she can't breathe and he's yeah. doing nothing. And the first time I was like, "Oh, the jokes that humans can't breathe on Mars." And I'm like, "No, the joke is that he's just fucking joke is colossally he's... insensitive." Yes. He's... <laughs> yeah. By the time it's six, by the time it's as many panels as it is. Yes. Like... Yeah. It's it's his butt so sad so blue. <laughs> And yet eternally perky unless he chooses otherwise. It's a good butt. There's a lot of good butt in this uh, comic mm. as well, which, you know, having always been an ass man, I enjoy. An interesting, by which I mean horrible thing, DC Comics will not let Watchmen die. They will not let it be a story that stands on its own. So they did before Watchmen. Mm. Um, and they've uh, done a whole bunch of continuity correcting stuff over the last six years. Um starting with Flashpoint, then the New 52, and now Rebirth, where it's revealed that everything that fucked up the previous continuities was Dr. Manhattan. They've actually introduced Watchmen into the mainstream DC universe. Uh, Or at least Dr. Manhattan. Do they not understand that what makes it work is it and itself and its nice tight structure and the fact that it is a self-contained unit and you don't need to bolt all of the other shit onto it just because it's going to make you some fucking money? I mean, does nobody at DC have that intellectual capacity? No. I'm forced to conclude no. I suspect... I, I... Uh, it's going to sound like I'm being charitable, but it's really not. I suspect that they do have the capacity to understand that and do not care. They choose not to because the money speaks louder than the yeah. intellectual purity of the thing. Yes. Considering some of their other practices, like, you know, not getting rid of that dude. Yeah. I don't... I don't... Thinking isn't their strong suit. We didn't come here to brain. We came here to make a lot of money out of comics. Yeah. I think it's just... It's completely by the by, but a, com- a company that is now run by Jim Lee, who was one of the founders of Image and went there because he was being mistreated as a creator and mm. wanted a company where, you know, they could all have their own things and, and, and based on their own Create stuff, your own properties, all get along. Is, is going to such an extent to cram 
this back into the mainstream DC universe is, is fascinating. The way that Moore and uh, David Gibbons' contracts were written, the rights would revert to them when it went out of print, and because it's never gone out of print, they never got the rights back. Mm, probably never will and in their lifetimes at this point, because it's just well, no. blown up into a sort of pop culture sensation, as well as a comic and a story and a... yeah. Um, uh, the only uh, going sorry going back to Doctor Manhattan very briefly there was the um, the panel was saying don't you see that us, the futility of asking me to save a world that I no longer have any stake in and that sort of that feels like a kind of emotional battle that's playing out at the moment that especially sort of on the side that is broadly the good side mm. it seems to be sliced up between despair and futility and what's the point and no maybe there is something good about being alive we should at least try. Yeah. I, I increasingly. I often find mean, why should I care about one. these fuckers? Like, yeah. these awful assholes that want to live on racist island, why should I care? Have, have and, we never. And it's because I've got to live in their fucking ashes. But. Have we never just said, here's some territory, go there, we won't send you any people you don't like, and you can fucking kill yourselves and each other if you want to, but we don't want you to be racist here if you want to be racist, go over there. Uh, I don't. It, it, I'm sure you can't actually do that. Well, in any logistically, you way. probably can't, but we especially can't because they're in charge. Mm. Are you glad you reread Watchmen? Yes. I mean, I haven't actually finished it yet, and it's. I'm not going to stop here just because we did the podcast. Now I'm 100% carrying on. Um, because it's, it's very dense, and I didn't have a lot of time. No, but I find it interesting as a. As a thing to read because it is, you know, as you said, very heavily based off superhero comics and superhero comic mm. morality, and you don't read a whole lot of that. So the fact that you still get plenty out of it mm. is well, the I, I get so much more out of it now than I did before. I mean, it's, I don't read a lot of superheroes, but I have read a reasonable amount in the meantime, just sort of by the accident of doing this for nearly five years. It's also not mad specific, so mm. you. You'd struggle if you didn't know who Batman was, but you don't need specific Batman. Yes. No, and I mean they're all—I mean they're all analogs of Charleston comic characters um, that DC decided they couldn't use in the end anyway. Mm. Um, so they're all—you know—now Night Owl is Blue Beetle, mm. and um, and so on. Uh, but you know they wanted those for the—they wanted those for the mainstream. DC Universe and so they fold them in um, but it doesn't need to be that specific they are largely archetypes although there isn't a there isn't really a Superman analogue unless you really stretch Dr. Manhattan mm. he's doing very different work it's yeah. the closest yeah. thing there is but he's not he's the he's the sort of he's filling the universal saviour role except he's largely abdicated it mm. But then the point is, I think, well, one of the very quick and easy readings of it is that if you were, for all intents and purposes, all powerful, in, and it's probably indifferent as to whether Dr. Manhattan's version of omnipotence is different from the Superman Always Saves the Day version, mm. um, wouldn't you just get bored? Well, I mean, he makes the 
when he's talking about the way that he sort of perceives time and events unfolding, you know, the human characters are often like, well, you knew that was going to happen, why didn't you do anything about it? And his take is, I'm also a puppet, I can just see the strings, I know how I will react to it in the future, I don't get control over that. Fuck, that's bleak. But, yeah. But, yeah, no, but interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, And another thing that I really, really like about Watchmen, and I like it about Alan Moore in general, and I like it about weird uncle warren his spiritual successor the sheer unironic violence mm. just mm. you know horrifying sometimes for comic oh, effect but often not as in it's real it's not tongue-in-cheek it's yes. not enjoying itself this is violence that is violent it's horrible yes yeah yeah no i like that i like that very much there in b Yes, and one of my sort of preferred portrayals of it, because otherwise you lose the impact, you make it campy, you, I don't know. Or you romanticise it. Yes. A lot of the tongue-in-cheek stuff is... This is just, this is horrible, and it, it is a thing that humans are capable of, so we're going to show you the horrible things that humans are capable of, because that serves the ends of the plot. Heavily ironised martial arts stuff often has a nasty cake-and-eat-it thing with that, mm. where you kind of, you make something cartoony and then you do a deliberately gross bit, but it, it's kind of, yeah. it's not, it doesn't... Well, I think a lot of the, the Rorschach stuff, especially when he's going around on his own, could have been played a little bit lighter, a little mm. bit funnier than it actually is. So, you know, the he investigates a girl who's gone missing mm. and it turns out she got chopped up and fed to German shepherds mm. and then he murders the German shepherds yeah. and he murders the dude. Um you know, chopped up and fed to animals is an outrageous enough death that it is sometimes yeah. played funny, but this is absolutely not. No, There's no, not even it's... a hint of humour in it. There's almost... Rorschach opens by pretty much by telling a joke, mm. um, but there's almost nothing funny in his storyline. Mm. He makes quips occasionally, but yeah, I, I like that. I like that he's... He is more, the modern solace tone-wise, though, of the thing. It's, it, I can't not hear them in the same voice. No, that's the fair. sentence structure is so similar. <laughs> but yes, Les Gilbert and Solomon. burst on sidewalk. Exactly. So you More also... <laughs> <laughs> you also returned to the dark and, the the dark and hairy womb of Alan oh, Moore. Oh, not on the inside. Why the did womb. you do that? Um, I did that because the first time I read V for Vendetta, which was actually not that long ago, I fucking hated it. I read it in 2005, I think. You say not I that long ago, that, that was like 12 years ago. ago. Fuck, is it really? Yeah, sorry. Hell's nipples. Yeah, no. A six-year-old then is a legal adult now. Ah! Yeah. Watch, Watchmen might have fucking fooled you on this, but as far as we're concerned, time is linear, so you're going to have to assume that. Oh, no, really? Not just... I'm afraid so, yeah. Not a kind of, of the jewel. Not a kind of squishy, delicious temporal donut. Shut up and talk about the comic. Okay. No, I read I read V for Vendetta in 2005-2006, something like that. I, I read it at, at Borders. Was that Borders? Yeah. Yes. Um, and I bounced off it. Did I, you nick it? No. Oh, sorry. You can cut that. That's why I had to borrow his copy. Um, which I'll give you, to you back, give to you back. I'm not going to nick it. It's good to know you've changed your ways. Uh, it's printed on fucking toilet paper. Oh god, I know, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. I There's think I read your that. copy. Yes, you did, that's why I was concerned I didn't have it. Yeah, sorry. Um, there's a reason for that, and that's because it preserves the colouring. Mm. Yeah, it's got that newspaper... I'll talk about the formal stuff in a bit, but there's some stuff that is incredibly deliberate 
formally, particularly around sort of colouring and tone. I think yeah, it wouldn't be the same without the paper. I can't. It's horrible to handle, but I can't imagine it feeling like a a glossy modern like an image book. No. It well for a start the colours would look so wrong it'd be hideous. Mm. But I think it's actually completely right that it feels like that. I, I'm not going to go all the way to eleven on this and say that the sort of the haptics are part of the semantics. Like it, it doesn't. I, it there's a there's a that it's fitting that it feels like newsprint, but that's where I'm going to stop with that. Yeah. Um, no, when I when I first read it, I, I said I hated it. I just bounced off it. I kind of it was early in me seriously getting into comics. I struggled with the art. Um, I thought it. And I just thought it was adolescent, actually, because I, I didn't read it very thoroughly. I, I kinda, like all, all of this shit's built on top of FIFA Vendetta, the um, the co-option of the Guy Fawkes mask stuff by the protest, <sighs> protest cunts. God. Like, I'm down with a solid left-wing insurrectionist movement, but that's not what that this is. That ain't the one we got. Um, so, to pick out a specific thing... It's Alan Moore, right? So Promethea is his lecture on magic. Mm. V for Vendetta, whilst also being a good story with well-realised characters and all of that jazz, is his lecture on, if not politics, then the intersection of types of view of justice and freedom. It's his essay on anarchy. Mm. And he explicitly calls out the difference between anarchy and chaos. He talks about anarchism as a coherent theoretical corpus. V V lectures to camera pretty much on, Mm. on this. I don't know why I keep saying to camera with comics, like to reader. He's specifically lecturing to to Evie, um, not the Pokemon. But um, but I wanted a Flareon. We all wanted a Flareon, but sometimes you get a Vaporeon and it's okay. It's not. It's a mermaid chipmunk. I don't know what you people are talking about, and that makes me feel pretty fucking good. Okay. So there's um. There's some fairly explicit sort of dissection of what anarchism is and is not, but particularly anarchism as a reaction to fascism. That's kind of what mm. the, the final two thirds of it are about. Um, Timely. And yeah, Christ, it's I do not read this book now. Like if if the world ever returns to something approximating sane, go and read this. When you can give yourself the emotional distance yeah. between now and a book, it's it's not gonna help. This isn't gonna give you coping mechanisms. This is going to make you want to become a domestic terrorist. It was very much written as a response to Thatcher's re-election in the late eighties. Yeah, oh, quite explicitly. Um, but that was still kind of back when these were all like portents and warnings instead of actual reality. This is the thing: the gap has closed. Alan sees further than we do. It's the hair of his womb, <laughs> and the snake god that lives in his bath. Mm. Yeah, and also he's quite smart. Yeah. Really, quite smart. But the gap has closed to the point where, maybe not quite in the UK. I think I don't think totalitarianism on the cards. I think just a slide to grubbier and grubbier and grubbier, and then we'll get caught up in whatever gets kicked off by the states. Probably a nuclear war. Um, but you can you can sort of see the preconditions for totalitarianism forming in the what has been described as a stress test on the constitution that's happening across the water at the moment. But no, this is it. Moore's kind of envisioning of. Of a, of a fascist future, you can kind of when I, when I read it somewhat adolescently, you can pick up. And, oh yeah, this is this is a mm. this is a fun dystopian. It's extremely um, compelling. The journey yeah. from something resembling the normal of the eighties and the normal we would maybe understand mm. now to where they but, end up is reasonable. But I bounced off the art and I thought it was glib, and 
I didn't take kindly to being lectured about anarchism in what I thought was a fairly superficial way. Mm. And I realised in hindsight that actually I, I, I made a fairly superficial reading. The Offender is not perfect. There are, there are problems with it. But I feel the same um, about Watchmen, if it helps. My initial reading was a lot more superficial than this one. I think, if I had to make a glib generalisation, because I think my early reading of Watchmen was quite similar to yours, mm. um, Alan Moore is so, in a lot of his work, is so obviously affectionate for and is so obviously playing with the tropes, not only of comics, but the tropes, but, but playing with a view of comics that is quite casual, mm. like the newspaper funny strips, the mm. superhero stuff, that you don't realise how smart he is if you don't give it the time. I think with both V for Vendetta and Watchmen, probably all of his stuff, there's the dumb read and the smart read and both yeah. are entertaining and both are capable of happening within the same person with yes. about a ten year gap. And so you can just clip through V for Vendetta as this sort of vengeance anti-fascist romp that doesn't really do anything. <laughs> yes. Or you can reread it in 2017 as something horrifyingly depressing with an urgent political message that would never land but that also would never work so a lot of V's insurrection is obviously not achieving much mm. and his hope for what Evie will achieve may or may not go anywhere quite something like the it's not quite as acute but the ending of Watchmen mm. what happens do we win do we lose no, you, you, there isn't much ambiguity it's pretty obvious that everything's going to turn to shit but like mm. how how fragile is that utopia how much does mm -hmm. So can can Evie as a successor to to V actually help them pull through? He's he's burned everything down. Can they build anything? And it's it's not very optimistic, but it entertains just enough ambiguity. Mm. But what what I, what I completely missed the first time was how fucking astonishing the art is. Well, I, I genuinely like it rereads quite well. Alan Moore's work rereads really well. It stands up to the oh, yeah. the distance. David Lloyd's work, fuck me. And um, Siobhan Dodds, I think, the, uh, Siobhan Dodds, the, the colorist, the, between the two of them, just, it's got this inkwashy sickliness, mm. like everything's under bad streetlights, mm. which it is. Not, not that much of it takes place in daylight, which again, I didn't realize the first time I read it. Watchmen's similar, they're, they're mm. thematically similar in. Watchmen's a lot more neon. A lot Watchmen's very much mm. that sort of grubby neon eighties mm. take on much New York. Much smaller palette. This is atrophied newsprint. This is slimy oil. This is like oil on the pavements, colour mm. washers, but all in almost not quite half tone. It's that greyness of nineteen eighties newsreel, yeah. isn't it? UK newsreel in particular oh, yeah. is very and it's it tiny grey and, and urban and concrete. Yeah. Tiny panels, and when it breaks out into something bigger, it uses it very sparingly into tremendous effect. Mm. Um, and it keeps things compressed. Alan Moore is very good at keeping things compressed, mm. um, narratologically, but with David Lloyd and, 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 and Tom. It, fuck me, the colour is good. Um, it's sickly, it's strange, um, it plays really well with light and shadow, geometric abstractions. The fake computer is just mm. a series of. It's just, it's just some squares in the background and you never hesitate for a moment to feel that this is some kind of eerie, semi-intelligent presence. It's, it's extrusion of sort of the 70s into the 90s and assumptions about technology mm. uh, actually fall yes. short. So the future it projects as 1998 
is less technologized than 1998 actually was, albeit not by masses. Same is true of the 85 and mm. the, actually, the 85, but with Dr. Manhattan's yeah. abilities in. He's weirdly good at future guessing. It's plausible. Mm. It's, it's sci fi. I, mean, I love a yesterday's Not enough big screens, but. <laughs> I love a yesterday's tomorrow. Yes, oh god, yes. Um, and this is a plausible but understandably wrong yesterday's tomorrow. Mm. It's, it's just fucking great. It, Things about it though, so it's—I mean—it's got this really interesting three-act, like I guess, sort of three-act structure. But each—they're all described as a prologue. Mm. At the end of all of them, it says "end of prologue," and it keeps these sort of ambiguous thing open, chain of identity. Um, like you, I was worried about the gender stuff, and actually, it's worse in V than I think it is in Watchmen. Yes, there's a lot of male gaze. Some of that is it instantiating the world, but V has this thing about um, the prime minister—is it Susan's? Relationship with the fake computer as being sexualized and being comparable to V's fetishization of Lady Justice, mm. and sort of various talk about well, you having bedded my mistress, I shall bed yours, and lots of. It, 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 but you've also you've also got the sort of older, experienced man talking at a young woman about yeah. a lot of stuff that he really cares about. Thing whereas in Watchmen, the power balance of the women is slightly better. Yeah, and there's there's some fairly grotty stuff in V. In Watchmen, there's definitely a pre- and post-60s take on that in the two versions of Silk Spectre. Yes. And also, I mean, there's there's lots of... It's not that nothing bad ever happens to women, but there's a a lot of sort of thinking and talking about and other perspectives that aren't just, yes, you deserve that to happen to you in Watchmen, which made it feel sort of more nuanced than I was hoping for, even. Even though there is sexual assault in, in... Watchmen and a couple of instances it is never cheap no it's, it's not, not gross it's and never it's not for male shock value no. also true in view with usually one explored. exception as it is sort of explored from the perspective of that's not right as well as from the that's a thing that happens perspective yeah. and the really sexualised gazy stuff in V is confined to the cabaret show and only when we are being explicitly told that it's not okay mm. so it's it's not this isn't like Alan Moore's a big misogyno prick. He may or may not be. I, I doubt it. But um, if he were, I think it would read more obviously yeah. because I, they don't tend to be great at hiding it. Yeah, it feels like the instantiation of a word, world full of misogynists rather than a world by mis- by a misogynist. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uncomfortable, but I think the uncomfortableness is uncomfortability, discomfort. Mm, is sa- I think the discomfort is salient as mm. opposed to, to accidental. Um, it's sort of unlikely in any case that a fascist state would have allowances for gender in the same way that it wouldn't have allowances for skin colour, religion, anything it's um I don't know, so coming back to it, I'm thinking about the things I bounced off it's political engagement is actually reasonable it's not it's not adolescent in the way that I was adolescent when I read it. It is not adolescent. The book is basically my takeaway from that. Uh, that's ex- so the conclusion I came to, I was the little bit of cringe of fear inside me mm. was because I associated it with the things of being cringingly adolescent mm. young, and that was me, but that was not the book. Mm. Um, and I had not really realised that distinction, and the fear was, again, sort of me rather than the book. I wonder if there's an extent to which, um, this, this is glib, but I'm going to float it out there. When I read it, I thought I was smarter than Alan Moore, and now I realise that he's smarter than me. Mm. <laughs> I don't know, that kind of... I mean, you'd have a snake god in your bathtub, I don't, either. yeah. That sort of 
late teens, early twenties, over entitled Cambridge literature oh, grad thing that we both had going on. Oh, but yeah. I, you were probably a lot less entitled than I was. Um, of thinking you're kind of massively superior to the text you fondle. No, I mean, was I ever that bad? Maybe. Maybe. It depended on the text I was fondling. Yeah. But you know what I mean? That kind of mm-hmm. thing of, I, I am literate, I can engage with this thing, stomp, stomp, stomp. There is nothing I can't read. Mm. There is, But I mean, I guess, yeah, no, I, I definitely used to have much more of the, there is, my mind is so great that there is nothing mm. I can't understand if I put it to it, and just time is showing me that that was painfully false. And there are things that you... I don't want to be that douche that says, oh, well, you need to have lived through such and such. You'll only understand such and such a book in your 60s. That may or may not be true. I want it not to be true. I want everyone to be able to read everything. But there's definitely life experience that I've had that makes some of this feel more immediate. And that could just be this epoch. That could just be living through our horrifying present times. I think also what is interesting is it, you'll enjoy it better or understand it better at X age. It doesn't preclude you from reading it earlier or later. No. There are plenty of books that I think you know, that you come back to multiple times and you get something different from them every time and all of those experiences are interesting and valid. It's not like just because you were young and you got something different when you were 40 Mm. means the young thing was wrong or you shouldn't have done it. Yeah. I'm glad I read it when I did, even though I didn't get a lot out of it, and I'm even more glad that I read it again now. It's, um... I... I've swung entirely from thinking it was the Alan Moore that you read to be completist but you don't really enjoy to thinking it's genuinely fucking brilliant and being really sad that it was tainted by that garbage movie and by the fact that it's been misinternalised by a bunch of pricks that don't understand anarchism. Mm. Like, it's actually not a bad primer. I wouldn't describe myself as an anarchist. I'm not particularly fond of some of it, but I think this is actually a pretty good, compelling narrative Mm. primer on what anarchism isn't, like the stuff that the outlines. And the, the tensions, the tensions in systems of power and justice. Anybody who... You want to go up to the people who are buying the masks in Forbidden Planet and taking them to protest something they don't really understand and saying, have you actually fucking read the book and understood the messages? Because it it makes that point. You know the really glib thing, the thing that is very easy to say from your armchair of, well, what, you want to tear everything down and have anarchy? Well, Christ, how do you think we got to this? And it it sort of... It kind of makes that that point of... Mm. steering what you get afterwards is still part of the exercise. Yes, and I mean, flipping into some of my other experiences in the workplace, that's a thing that a lot of people fall down on, you know, strategy-wise, mm. thinking we're done as soon as we've got a plan or made a change, as opposed to seeing change yes. as a long-term management project Absolutely. that has a post-change phase that mm. you also need to fucking manage carefully. Um, so, yeah, turns out that Alan Moore comic that's really famous that everyone likes is actually really good. Yeah, good job. Mr. Congrey. So, Day Tripper by Moon and Bar. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on here, but I did re—I did review it on a site I no, used I to write for about five about years ago. I think I also talked about it because I read it sh- a little bit after you did. Okay, well, the basic premise. During the podcast. So, I, I found it quite affecting when I first read it, and the basic premise is it's a sort of eight issue comic um, focusing on a guy called Braz, who is the only son of a sort of very famous magical realist author in Mm. Brazil and he well I think it's sort of fairly explicit he's a magical realist Mm. Um, in South America of course he is yeah sorry wow wow that came out of nowhere take that South American literary tradition racism have it um 
so the 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 idea is it's sort of each issue is him at a different point in his life. So you start meeting him in the very early thirties. He's disaffected. He's writing obituaries for a local newspaper, and he doesn't know really what he wants from his life. Um, and at the end of it, someone walks into a bar and shoots him for no reason. Mm. And this keeps happening, and it sort of it uses his death each time to examine what he meant to the people around him and what he had done, his sort of satisfaction with his life. And it does it all through very small moments for the most part. Um, or it emphasizes the, the banal. Um, so when he's thinking about the big things, when he's sort of striving to be, striving to be on an adventure or striving to be, st- living up to his father's legacy and that sort of thing he sort of fails is distracted isn't looking at the world around him but then when he's sort of focusing on small things he still dies horribly mm. again and again but he's in a sort of slightly more he's, he's slightly more engaged with the world around him and it sort of slowly builds a narrative of actually reaching the end of a life that he considers well lived and mm. that he is satisfied with um, by building up all of these different moments and things that have happened or could have happened to him and it's remarkably structured in that it does this and builds a coherent narrative where the main character has died seven times before you reach the end of it which is a a neat bit of writing um it could be very glib something like this Mm. think about your best life it's all a bit eat pray love but it's so smart and engaging so I reread it thinking maybe in the same way that I was being quite puerile, maybe it was something a little bit, maybe it was tackier, maybe mm. it was... Just more emotionally gauche. Yeah, yeah. Than, than I thought, and I was being, you know, an overly gushing imbecile thinking this, this, this was brilliant work. But no, I was right. Um, five years ago, I was still very, very uh, good at re- reviewing comics, so suck it, everyone, frankly. You're still using the Hamstone headshot, though. Yeah, I know. You're going to drop the mic there, just like, I'm, I was awesome, I'm still awesome, boom. I, so I, I reread it completely over the last couple of days and still found it to be affecting it in the same way and instructive in the same way, which is not that there is any sort of central philosophy beyond pay attention. Um, and... You know, this is the sort of thing where I'm at a quite a different point in my life. It could have been that I identified with or hung on to a different point because, you know, there's a, there's a bit where he's in his sort of mid to late 30s as I am now. Um, and I was, you know, at the point at which he was in his early 30s, I was very much trying to get my shit together in the same way. But what's interesting on revisiting it is that I did not hang on any particular... Age it is well enough mm. written that it's mm. identifiable through any point, and even if, you know, he's he's portrayed as someone who took his took his time getting his shit together, um, but even with that, it is it is you know he's he's still at the various points has something useful and is identifiably the same character with the same issues and the same quirks, even if he is gradually managing to 
get his shit together piece by piece by the time he's 78 or so. I think um, something I really, I really, really, as someone who massively bought in at sort of school to the idea that life is an escalator and you've got to hop on and fucking stay on or else you're going to fall apart and die and tick all the right boxes or else it's all going to be shit forever. I have so much respect now as an adult for narratives where it's okay to take your time getting your shit together. Oh, fuck yeah. Because there's just no breathing room for that the way we program kids at the moment. It's a shit show. And I, I didn't... I bought in quite a bit. Mm. Maybe not quite as much as that. But yeah, realising that it's okay to have an extended and, frankly, in my case, distended adolescence. That, it, that you... That getting your shit together can be gradual and, in fact, is optional overall. Yes. Yes. Mm. So not I mean, enough stuff leads with that. And when it does, it tends to be quite judgy. Yes. Did you read that, that really fucking stupid but kind of entertaining post on, I think it was Medium, that attributes everything that's wrong with the world currently to the TV show Friends. Yes, I think I did. And it, its core thesis was that anti-intellectualism is rooted in laughing at Ross, which is ridiculous because he's one of the worst characters ever to be written in anything. And, and it's, it's creepy, not because he's fuck. too smart and no. everybody couldn't handle that he's too smart. It's because he's dreadful. But I'm willing to attribute the decline of civilization to, mm. to Friends, not least because it, one of the things that it peddles is that... Any, any, I've only ever seen a couple of episodes of Friends when someone who I'm no longer in contact with forced me to sit down and watch them back to back. And the only thing I can remember about that character in particular is that at one point, this is in fact the only thing I can remember ever seeing in the TV show Friends, he lent in and overtly mouthed the words, The Moist Maker. I no longer have context for that. I no longer understand it, but I know that it happened. This has been the day's therapy section of the podcast. Unfortunately, we're not qualified to help. That show is hot, hot, salty garbage, and we shouldn't be discussing it. If you would like help, we know a show you could write to. That does seem like an excellent point to wrap up at. Um, so we've, we've, we've been on a huge roller coaster of a journey, each of us finding that good things are still good. You should probably read all of those things, especially if you probably, haven't already. Probably all read them. Actually, people probably, probably haven't read Day Tripper. No, I haven't. Because it, it when it was big, but it wasn't that big. It, it wasn't. Was it certainly big, wasn't as huge. To Watchmen yeah. big. Yeah, I think it was one of the last sort of books that came out of Vertigo before Vertigo mm. collapsed for a while. Mm. Um, so if you haven't read it, it, is well worth seeking out. Definitely, I want to read it again. I forgot it existed. So did I. I actually haven't read it. Oh, it's really this, good. You'll like it. This has reminded me that I should fucking read it. Mm. As Mr. Hart said, if uh, you are in need of of help or advice, you good should advice. seek out our good sister show, We Will Fix You, um, which is available at wewillfixyou.co.uk and is also on the iTunes and the RSS and all that good stuff. It's like this, but just the stupid jokes and none of the comics. But you know, you've heard us here talking about our own emotional journeys and how much we hate society, so if that's the kind of perspective you want on your problems, which yeah. it probably isn't, because I mean, we're still all shit shows. If you just want 20 minutes of our borderline nihilistic kind of anti-capitalist nonsense, Go and listen to that show. And if you want us to answer your questions, give you the advice that you need, get you through those difficult times, email wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com and 
We will indeed. Fix you. And with that... Oh, look at us getting all transmedia and cross-promoting, like people that work in marketing. Good night. Ta-ta. Bye. taste as good. No, this was dry and oh, yeah. dry and firm. You could have really packed it on.